Hello and welcome to Let the Bird Fly, a podcast about living freely in a world given back to us. Wade and I are continuing our online uh, education in this uh coronavirus pandemic situation we are in. And today is going to be our last uh, session for apologetics, philosophy 202. And this is a class where we sort of end up with the uh, theology of the cross coming off of the problem of evil, and then kind of talk uniquely about the theology of the cross just in general, but then also how it might relate to apologetics. And there's two ways I think this relates uh, to apologetics. One is there's an epistemology that comes out of the theology of the cross. So epistemology is a big fancy word for the study of knowledge. How do we know what we know? What is truth? And then also um, the problem of evil. How do we deal with this conundrum? How could there be an all-powerful God who is all-loving? And how could there also be then a world full of evil? And I think the theology of the cross is very unique in trying to navigate that difficult situation. It also is a good way to end our apologetics class because uh, from the beginning, I've told you students that uh, there is no home runs in any of this. Uh, You don't reason somebody into faith, but rather we're trying to give what we might call preponderance of evidence. So what we're saying is that this is plausible, if not even probable, these claims of Christianity. And when you're dealing with somebody who's a skeptic, you're dealing with a person who has a soul, whether they admit it or not, and uh, they uh, are going to come with a priori's, uh, prior convictions, um, and that they're going to try to put the evidence into that. And so one way is to say, here's the evidence that's out there. There's eyewitness accounts to the resurrection, or philosophically, uh, it makes sense that uh, there would be a, a creator, a contingency argument. But it is also a time just to have a conversation with somebody who may be struggling struggling with the great questions of life. Who am I? Where's my value? How can, how do I deal with suffering in the world? And so these are about relationships and the rubber often hits the road when it comes to suffering. And so can Christianity offer a robust worldview, for lack of a better term, that does answer these great big questions, that is intellectually robust, that can look to the evidence, but can also speak to the soul. So uh, throughout the semester, we've also talked about what we might call tough-minded Christianity. Here's some hardcore facts or some philosophical arguments, but also uh, apologetics to the tender-hearted. So we may think of uh, the, the words of C.S. Lewis, a certain uh, poetry of John Donne, things that, that talk to our souls that, uh, you know, not all skeptics are these hardcore atheists, Beastie rationalists. Boys. Yeah, I mean, there's also, well, I mean, it's true that when you look at art, and no matter what kind of genre the poetry is in or the the art is in, it does speak to things that are beyond this world. And can we navigate all of that? And a good Christian apologist should be well-read and be able to uh, talk about all of these different things. So when we talk about the theology of the cross, uh, the first point I'd like to make is that we really shouldn't talk about a theology of the cross versus a theology of glory. Those are two always the, the contrast here. But a theologian of the cross and a theologian of glory. So, Wade, if I said to you, what's the difference between a theology of the cross and a theologian of the cross, how would you answer that question? Well, I would say a a theologian of the cross is one to whom the theology of the cross has been done. Um, 
a uh, a theologian in the view of the theology of the cross is is comes through study of the word, but also through experience of it that the text stands over the person uh, that he or she experiences Lara gospel. Um, experiences what it is both to be saved through Christ's cross and to bear that cross in this life. So I don't know if that's what you're asking, but yeah. that'd be my first response. It's something that you don't just study. It's something that you live, right? And so <clears throat> while we said that the theology of the cross or being a theologian of the cross has some epistemological issues, uh, it, it talks to epistemological issues, but also talks about the problem of evil really at its core is law and gospel, right? And so we should maybe talk about that a little bit. And so I'm, I'm just going to read uh, the first couple of uh, the, of the uh, theses from Luther's Heidelberg Disputation, where he does develop in his most straightforward way this theology of the cross. The law of God, the most salutary doctrine of life, cannot advance man on his way to righteousness, but rather hinders him much less can human works, which are done over and over again with the aid of natural precepts, so to speak, lead to that end. Although the works of man always seem attractive and good, they are nevertheless likely to be mortal sins. So we need to talk about two things here. How does the law of God hinder man on its way to salvation? Well, if you think that you are fulfilling the law and therefore God is obligated to then save you, love you, bless you or whatever, then that law actually works against righteousness um, because it is a self-righteousness. It is a righteousness by law and that can, that can work against faith because faith says God does this for me rather than I do it for me. And so uh, uh, works done over and over again can actually hinder that if you have a misunderstanding of works. And this is where we get to the mortal and venial sin uh, distinction. Maybe, wait, I think you probably can say this more concisely than I can. What's the difference between That's a mortal... That's the first time you've ever said that to me. <laughs> uh, what is the difference between a mortal and a venial sin in the mind of Luther coming out of this uh, medieval... Uh, church. Sure, in the medieval or in the, the Roman Catholic sense, mortal sin is a specific class of sin. Sometimes those sins are enumerated. Um, think of the seven deadly sins. A mortal sin must be confessed. You need to go to confession for it before you die. A venial sin is a, a sin of weakness. Um, in the, uh, in the, the Lutheran understanding of it, a mortal sin uh, is a sin that kills faith, right? Um, it's a sin that... Uh, is inconsistent. It's a deadly sin, right? Now, this doesn't mean sin against the Holy Spirit, um, but it, it does mean, for instance, when Paul warns about those who practice such immorality, that they've given themselves over to, to it, they've found their identity in that instead of in Christ. Um, a venial sin will be a, a sin of weakness, as sinner saints that we commit. Um, it's not a sin we should take lightly or be unconcerned about, but it doesn't mean that we've fallen into unbelief. Would that be an okay way to put yeah. it? Yeah, and so <clears throat> Luther's going to flip that kind of upside down a little bit and say the works of the righteous 
can be mortal sins. So he's not just distinction between, oh, like if I kill somebody, that's a mortal sin. If I, you know, say something evil uh, behind their back, that may be a venial sin of weakness. Um, and the mortal sin is what gets me to hell. And the venial sin is something that can be overcome or can be forgiven. He's saying that your righteous acts, if they are done in order to gain righteousness for yourself before God, that those are the mortal sins. And that's, I mean, that's very Pauline and, We've recorded on Romans, Mike, and we've talked about that, that Paul says there's two types of righteousness that you can try to stand before a God with. There's the righteousness of works, but Moses says if you're going to do it, you have to live by all of it, and the righteousness of faith. And so these these sins become mortal because they're, they're setting one in the system of righteousness before which they can only stand as God before God as sinner and not as saint. And so a lot of this has to do with fear. So if I come to God with my with my track record and I don't fear the wrath of God, then I'm not in faith. That would be a mortal sin then, even though those things look so good. Um, and so there's a lot to do with the, the, the correct fear of, of God. This makes it harder in Lutheranism when people come to you. Sometimes people just want a list of mortal sins. And that, in that case, the seven deadly sins works really well. But Mike, have you seen the movie Seven, by the way? Mm-hmm. That's a really good movie. Mm-hmm. And I like that it has a depressing ending because some movies try to be too happy yeah. um, but that goes through the seven deadly sins for Lutheranism some of the times it's it's dispositional it's intentionality it's it's not just the outward act um, and, and that makes sense because Paul's talking about the transforming of our minds and mindsets for Neos and, and type, these types of words that he uses um, for Naya but um, so it's there's not a, a set list um, but anything that becomes self-justification or self-work righteousness becomes dangerous. So he can say in Thesis 12, and my students have this in front of them, in the sight of God's sins are then truly venial when they are feared by men to be mortal. <laughs> so if I think my sins, all of them, big or small, uh, I fear them to be uh, uh, mortal in the sense that they kill me and that I'm dead and that I should be punished. Um, that's when they are venial, that is something that can be forgiven. So now let's bring this to this kind of epistemological thing, uh, the study of knowledge, how do we know things? Um, I know these things because God said so, right? And so uh, I can, I, I rightfully in all of my looking at the world, I can be wrong about things. I don't have the perspective of God. Um, I can't prove anything beyond a shadow of a doubt. So one of the first things we start out with in in, uh, apologetics class is trying to break away this notion that you can know anything with absolute certainty. I I can always be a sophist to you and say, well, maybe this is all just a dream. How do you know for sure? And so in that way, I can disprove everything, which is a tactic that you can use. You you did it again, by the way. You you gave me another line that gets me thinking of a... Of songs. Okay, go ahead. Do you know what this is? It was all a dream. What was it? I used to read Word Up magazine. I don't know that one. Have idea, but it's notorious B.I.G. Okay, very nice. Second I'll look up the lyrics second and I can, time I can we, do it under your talking. We have talked about the notorious B.I.G. and this uh, COVID-19 online learning experience. Um, <clears throat> Yesterday I was uh, singing some, some Jay-Z. Not, uh, not rapping, I was singing the the refrain, the chorus, and I don't think you picked up what it was. (laughs) Um, 
So when I think about uh, this epistemological situation that I'm in, <clears throat> I can't really know anything for certain. So somebody who says, well, I know that there's no God because there's no evidence, and here's my evidence that, uh, you know, the, that uh, everything is... I used to read Word of the Magazine, Salt and Pepper, and every day up in the limousine. Very nice. Pictures on my wall every Saturday, Repetet, Mr. Magic Mouse. So when, <gasps> so when maybe a hardcore rationalistic, <laughs> metaphysical, naturalist atheist says there cannot the be a God. The lyrics get a little bad after that, so I'm going to stop there. Because, uh, you know, you can't prove it beyond a shadow Talk of death. I would say you can't prove anything beyond a shadow of death. And you don't live with certainty. You live in probability. And this is one of the great gifts of faith is that we can be certain of things we, we do not see. And so I really can't be certain of anything by my own thinking or choosing. I just can't be. Um, and and I th that doesn't mean that we can't go around, we can't live our lives without real good probability that, you know, if I, if I walk down the sidewalk, it's not, you know, it's not going to open up in a big uh, sinkhole. But I don't know that for absolute certainty. <laughs> that kind of stuff happens all the time in Florida. So I, <clears throat> I, I don't, I go by probability, not certainty. One of the gifts of the spirit then would be certainty and faith. Um, and, and that's something that's beyond us. And if the person's being honest, the skeptics would be being honest, um, they, they will agree that they cannot be certain of everything. So when God says something in Revelation that it, I can take that with certainty, and that comes by faith, no doubt, but it's not faith in that something that's blind. There is evidence, right? And so I can then look at the evidence of Scripture. I can look at miracles performed. I can look at prophecies that are fulfilled. I can look at eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. And in that realm, I can say, I, I'm pretty, I'm, this is plausible, maybe even probable about that. Uh, this is probably uh, the true, the true reality that's out there. And so I can build a sense of reality by looking at the evidence. There's nothing wrong with that, but there can always be this lingering doubt. And so when we talk about, okay, now we got to the situation maybe where it's probable that there is a God, it makes sense that that God's truth would be above us. And actually that's a quite comforting thing that to know that there's an absolute truth uh, above us. And, and, and really it kind of helps, helps me navigate this world. It's, it's a better system than kind of doubting everything. It, it seems to be even a better explanation for reality that there seems to be an order there so that there would be an orderer. And then, then it makes sense that if I look at a very difficult world in my own personal life of suffering, that I go with what God says rather than what I think is, is true. And so there's a lot of epistemological things to think about when we, when we, when we encounter the theology of the cross. And finally it comes down to this, that I may see something as bad and God says it is good. And I may some, see something that is good and it actually may be bad for me. And, and we see this in science all the time. You know, uh, I was just reading an article about, uh, uh, chicken pox parties. I didn't know this was a thing that uh, when chicken pox came on uh, to build up herd mentality, that they, the uh, local neighborhood where one kid was sick, that they would have a party 
hoping that everybody else would get sick, build up immunity uh, for that, and and we would able to flatten the curve and and have this thing called herd mentality. We have that in our news today as we deal with the coronavirus, and I'm not saying that's the best way to deal with the coronavirus at all, but you get the idea here that something that looks bad actually may turn out to be something that is good. And, and so we're not foreign to this. We are foreign to it when we get into the realm of God because he has such a bigger perspective than us. And so our good works that may seem righteously good or civically good maybe is a better way to put it, if they work against faith, they're actually bad. And then when I have something that's bad in my life, as we talked about in the last session, perhaps a disease or something like that, think about Job, but strengthens my faith and gives me eternal life, that is so, that's a good thing, right? Even though it sees that it's bad. So one way to think about being a theologian of the cross versus a theologian of glory is you got to put on glasses. So think of lenses that I see the world through. If I see the the, the world through the theology of glory. I may be misinterpreting things, right? And I look at the cross and I say, that's ugly and that's bad. And I want to go to a church that's just all positive thinking and all that kind of stuff. But <clears throat> if I take away the cross, I take away my salvation and that's a bad thing. If I put on the lens of cross and I, and I look that Jesus had to go to this cross and that was the ultimate good and that I'm his co-worker in this world and that he wants me to trust in him and not anybody else and this is going to be a thing by faith, not just by a rational conclusion, <clears throat> that something that bad happens in my life actually may be good. And so this helps navigate then, I think, uh, the problem of evil. And the problem of evil... And we can talk about it abstractly all we want, <clears throat> but the problem with the problem of evil or the problem of pain or the problem of suffering is that there's somebody who is suffering through evil, right? And this is a person, and so we should be pastorally there. We should be pastoral with that person. And what I mean by pastoral is that uh, we are going to be compassionate. We're going to listen. And then we're finally going to, when the time is right, speak the truth of God. And this is very... This is very true of the apologetic task as well. Uh, you're going to want to, and this is what Dr. Kerry Keene, who has been uh, helpful with a couple of our lessons, online lessons this semester, he will say uh, the apologist wants to ask more questions than he answers. And the reason for that is you want to get, you want to build a relationship with that person. You want to build uh, a trusting relationship with that person. You don't want to be uh, the apologist who says, just believe this. What's your problem? Um, but you want to uh, appreciate where they're coming from and give them a full hearing so that they can they will hopefully reciprocate and give you a full hearing as well. And so pastorally, one of the best advices that I got was shut up and listen, right? You want to talk. We don't like silence. We don't want to fill the silence with uh, garbage. It is just to listen and to suffer with people and not to try to rationalize away the person's pain, right? It's kind of like when we talk about statistics and we say, uh, you know, why, uh, you know, why should it bother me uh, that, uh, you know, there is this disease in the world when, uh, you know, the chances of me getting that really just are, are so minuscule. Well, statistics don't matter if you have that disease, right? 
And so uh, it's a very personal thing. And to say, well, there is a God out there who actually has a solution to this, and no other worldview, no other philosophy gives us a solution that ends with eternity. No other worldview, no other religion, no other philosophy has God suffering with people. No other religion, no other philosophy, no other uh, uh, way of thinking has this thing called grace, right? And that uh, a promise from God that says, I will turn what is evil into bad. And so we may even talk to somebody bluntly and say, you know, suffering has to have meaning. And if suffering doesn't have meaning, then half of life doesn't have meaning. And that's on a good day in America, let alone a bad day in a third world country. Right. So we, we do need to have this idea that there is meaning to suffering. So when I, I think about why there is suffering uh, in the world, so now I'm moving, notice that I'm moving not just from the intellectual problem of evil, but the problem of suffering and pain. I may give uh, uh, four or five biblical reasons for suffering or better yet meaning to this suffering. One is our sufferings drive us to repentance. And so one way to think about it is our crosses that we uh, bear always push us to Christ's cross. I, I no longer trust in myself and in this world, which hasn't done, has done a lot for me, but not, not anything to solve my, pro my biggest problem, which is guilt and sin and the death which, which follows. <clears throat> so suffering drives us to repentance and ultimately, hopefully, by the Spirit's act and to faith. Sufferings strengthen us. Uh, we see this in everyday life, right? Uh, uh, somebody who works very hard at music to the point where maybe they, their eyes tire, or maybe if they're learning, they're doing a string instrument that their that their uh, fingers maybe even be callous, maybe bleed, and then are eventually are calloused. Those sufferings strengthen us, right? We we can see that what does not kill us makes us stronger, as the phrase goes. Our teachings also lead us to have compassion to others. And so it's, it's very hard to ground compassion in a worldview that has no meaning for suffering. You have compassion where you want to try to rid the world of suffering, either by a pill or a therapy. I, I suppose that's legitimate. Um, <clears throat> but it, it is something less than compassion to say, I suffered with you and this was a strengthening for me and uh, I now want to show you love. Um, it's an abstract thing to try to just give somebody a pill, although that certainly is and can be a loving action and, and should be done. But it's another thing to have suffered with somebody, and this is a soul type thing. Our teachings, our sufferings teach us um, uh, of the suffering of Christ, right? And we go so far as to say with uh, St. Peter, uh, that we share in Christ's suffering. And so just think about the profundity of that, that Christ suffered for us and with us, but that we suffer with him. And so uh, uh, this, is, this is something that, that, that our poets would speak about, that our movies and our, our music speak to, right? Uh, think about um, a, a soldier, right, that is going to share in the, that is going to sacrifice himself for the greater good. Uh, you can think about a, a, a nurse that uh, is suffering along with uh, her, his patience. Um, uh, I share in the sufferings of Christ, and those are for the love of people. And then our sufferings, specifically our crosses, are a mark of the church, right? So these are things that say, uh, th this person is something different. This person is somebody that Christ died for, and it makes sense that they would 
actually suffer with Christ and for Christ if the world is opposed to Christ than it would be opposed to Christians. And so it is a mark of the church. Both uh, <clears throat> We see that in Psalm 116, but we also see that um, a couple of times in our Lutheran confessions as well. And so just even though this doesn't eradicate pain or suffering, even though this is not always an intellectual solution to the problem of evil, it does give us context, it does give us compassion, it does give us love, and quite frankly, gives us permission to lament to God and to be confident that there is going to be an answer from God. And, and uh, metaphysical naturalism just doesn't have that. So the theology of the cross, both epistemologically, to say that I got to let God have his way and what he says is true, and that's actually comforting. But then also with the problem of suffering and problem of evil, that I do get to see that there is a solution with Jesus Christ. That is a comforting message. That's the gospel message that no other worldview really can offer. So um, I thought that was a pretty good summary of the theology of the cross as it relates to uh, uh, the apologetic task. Again, it's not a home run. None of this is. But really, it is a uh, giving a robust worldview that answers some of the tough questions that are out there, including why there could be evil in a world like this. Uh, any last words from you, Wade? No, I thought you did a good job. All right. So, students, thanks for putting up with us doing this online stuff. I know that it, uh, it certainly wasn't easy or the ideal, um, but uh, hopefully you did uh, gain something and we had a little fun along the way. Um, so keep plugging away with your, if, with your final assignments. Uh, stay safe. Love your neighbor. Trust in God. It's going to be okay. And let the bird fly.